Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Other Side Podcast mission is to discuss important cultural and social issues relating to race, culture, gender, and equality. Welcome. In partnership with the Columbus Dispatch, The Other Side is featuring a series of special podcast episodes called In Black and White. The series is devoted to discussing race and its impact on society. Dr. Terrence Dean and I will be interviewing scholars, community leaders, and artists in relevant fields to try to answer some of the most important questions related to race and the Black experience. And joining us today is Dr. George Barnett, family medicine practitioner with the Ohio Health Network. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Barnett. Glad to be here. We want to jump right in. I want to thank you again for, for being a part of this conversation. I thought it was critical that we have this conversation um, as you know, um, mass mandates have been lifted across, you know, various states. Um, airlines and travel transportation have lifted um, mandates as we still are in COVID-19 and Omicron and new variations of um, the the virus continues to mutate. And, um, and, and I'm thinking of people of color um, and those who have underlying health issues, um, those who have may have been exacerbated in their health issues um, since COVID and continuing COVID. And I want to ask you, Dr. Barnett, have you seen an increase with your patients um, visiting or, um, um, or or their health concerns, issues being exacerbated because um, we are moving more towards uh, a relaxing of our behaviors and patterns as even though we're still in a pandemic? Yeah, I would say that's a that's a very good question. Uh, what we have seen and what I have seen during the pandemic uh, was actually a disconnect with the African-American community from us as the healthcare providers. Because of the pandemic, African-American patients were no longer really seeking their treatments, getting their regular follow-up appointments for management of their high blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease, and those kinds of things. And as a result of that, you know, we've seen an increase in uh, morbidity and mortality as it relates to the pandemic because people were unable to, you know, uh, interface with their uh, primary care uh, practitioners. This was also sort of compounded by the fact that the healthcare system, you know, throughout the years has never been really friendly towards African-Americans. I mean, you know, we talk about Tuskegee, we talk about Henrietta Lacks and and the things, which are things from years gone by. But even today with the health disparities, you know, our visits to encountering the healthcare system, we're not treated in a, in a friendly manner, which makes us very uh, suspect about the whole healthcare system. So those are the things that have really uh, exacerbated our 
our health problems. Now, with that in mind, so that which is a really great, you know, um, um, entry point when you talk about Tuskegee and Henrietta Lacks. And I think, you know, with COVID and the vaccination um, where so many were hesitant um, to receive the vaccination, do you think that also played a factor as well because of the mitigating concerns and issues with the um, healthcare system that has not been um, as, as as kind and friendly or, or opening to people of color that made it more difficult for them to receive the vaccination? And then those who are considering high blood pressure, diabetes, um, heart disease, and all these other factors, um, why we see more morbidity happening as well. Uh, you're absolutely correct. Uh, because of the vaccine hesitancy amongst African-Americans, they were uh, slow to uh, endorse getting the vac vaccinations. And uh, as a result, you know, we saw higher cases of COVID as a result, higher cases of morbidity and mortality related around, around the COVID. Uh, and really only through efforts of us as the practitioners trying to get the word out to them that it is safe, that it's effective and that kind of thing. We were able to, you know, sort of move that needle a little bit, but there still was a lot of hesitancy out there. So do you think as we're moving towards the relaxation of masks and we're moving into a warmer climate, you know, of summer months, um, that, you know, people who were hesitant or people um, the effects of who had COVID, because we, we hear about long-term COVID, those who had symptoms and continue to exhibit symptoms um, after COVID. Uh, have we really seen the impact of what it would truly do to the African-American community? Yep, I think that 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 what what is happening is, is that because we are relaxing, you know, the, the mask mandates, which is really uh, you know, how much of that is medical and how much of that is political, mm -hmm. you know, because it's the government that's really relaxing all the man, man, you know, all the mask mandates uh, via the Centers for Disease Control. And I mean, just like the, the mandate for wearing masks on airplanes, you know, a judge says, well, the CDC doesn't have the power to do that. So the mask, you know, you know now you no longer have to wear your mask on an airplane. <laughs> well, um, you know, that's going to have impact. You know, we're not going to see that right away, but right. we may see that two or three months from now. You know, we you know, we really don't know. But that the relaxing of the max mandates and those kind of things, I think, is going to have an effect. Now, the because we're moving into the summer months, uh, the virus transmission and things like that tend to go down uh, and become uh, much less during the uh you know, warm weather, you know, but if we remember last year, we sort of had a spike like in August, things went up, then they came on back down. And then October, you know, we had the Omicron hit and yeah. started in South Africa, just spread across the world. And by January, you know, we were in the in the throes of it. Right. Right now, this uh, the uh, sub variant in Omicron, the I think it's the BA12 or BA2 Subvariant is starting to rise now, but it does not seem to be having the health impact that the previous uh, variants have had. So, you know, we're still waiting and seeing, you know, how that's going to uh, how that's going to play out.
So I'm, I'm really concerned, you know, about, you know, African-Americans, um, you know, the underlying health conditions and issues that we face. Um, as we talk about, you know, diabetes, um, heart disease and other factors that contribute to some of our health issues. Um, as a practitioner, what are some ways that we can get ahead of those curves? Because I, I remember visiting my practitioner and he said, well, you, you get it at a certain age where you need to start thinking about your blood pressure. You get it at a certain age where you just have to start thinking about um, because he, 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 he was using this as a scale as a white doctor he said because you're african-american and you're male and i was like oh so those are the two factors you're going by <laughs> um not the history in my family because there is no history of some of these issues that he was um bringing up so i wondered i was like well is is that his way of entering into the conversation around race and, and my gender or he just didn't know or he just you know he was just presuming um, but but as you as African American man and and your and your and your and your patients, um, how can we get ahead of that? Like, what are some of the things that we can? And I understand, you know, um, environmental plays a huge part. Uh, where persons live, access to um, food resources, you know, not living in food deserts, but. For those, like just some general basic things that people can start looking at who may have a history of in their family um, of heart disease and, and diabetes and, and the like. Yeah, you're talking a lot about health equity. Yeah. And, and you know, with health equity, uh, health, uh, the healthcare system is only a small part of that. You know, we've got all the social factors. Uh, housing, food, or those things that you mentioned. I think the most important thing that uh, African-Americans need to do is really try to engage with a primary care practitioner to start getting screened for these uh, particular health problems. You know, we our healthcare system we developed is more of a sick care system than a preventive system. You know, we're the best in the world when it comes to curing all kinds of diseases and technologies. And, you know, we spend more money per capita than any, any nation on, on the globe in terms of healthcare, you know, but our outcomes are not that great. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we have a barriers, you know, we have uh, uh, insurance barriers, we have those kind of things, uh, access care to care barriers, those kind of things. And so, it's really upon us as individuals to seek out uh, the care that, that we need and start getting the, the preventative exams and checks and things like that so that we can head off these problems that, that appear down the road. And a lot of it has to do with, uh, with uh, prevention. So let me ask you this for a lay person who may not have the, the language or you know the medical expertise uh, when they go to a um, to the doctor or they're visiting their, their practitioner, what are some of the like, basic tests that they can ask for to say, hey, could you check me for this? Could you check for that? Like, how do they advocate for themselves that the doctor hears them and that they can say, okay, let's make sure that we get ahead of this and start testing for those types of issues? Right. Uh, they need to ask the practitioner, what are the preventative exams that I need 
based on my age. Okay. Because there's certain there's certain things, you know. Are you checking my blood pressure? Are you checking my uh lipid profile? Okay. Uh for you know, for women, are they are they getting their female examinations, which mm-hmm. screen them for cervical cancer? Uh older age women, are they getting a mammogram and things done? Uh People over 45, are you getting your screening colonoscopy done? You know, with the Affordable Care Act, all these preventative services are now at no expense to the patient. So they're they're basically free if you have insurance. (laughs) If you don't have insurance, you got to, that's another whole, that's another whole issue. But if you have insurance, whether it's, uh, Medicare for the elderly or Medicaid assistance for for the poor or the working poor, you know, our, unfortunately, uh, most of our private insurance is tied to employment. Right. And and that employment really has to deal with large corporate employment, because if you're working uh, in the small mom and pop restaurant or hardware store or something like that, they may not have insurance for their employees because of the expense of having insurance as, as a, a, a small sole proprietor type business. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's too expensive for you to even buy insurance, you know, and yeah. they do have insurance. You know, there is out here the uh, healthcare exchange, the government exchange, you know, where you can go out and buy insurance. But, you know, even that has been, in my experiences, has been fairly expensive. And 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 people are like, you know, I'm barely making it and they want, you know, three, four hundred dollars a month for insurance. And I'm not spending that much. So some of the things that that uh, make it make it uh, some of the barriers that make it difficult. But that's what they need are the screenings. Dr. Dr. Barnett, I I wanted to ask you, in addition to the the financial barriers, um, what what do you say to patients or to potential patients that um, there are a lot of people who don't go to the doctor because um, they're scared that they're going to end up with a, you know, with a medical bill that they can't afford. But a lot of people don't go to the doctor because they're scared of what the doctor is going to tell them. Um, They don't want the bad news. Um, They're, they're afraid of, you know, maybe they've had some, some type of physical ailment, and they're they're scared of going to the doctor and the doctor telling them something they don't want to hear. So how how would you suggest we work on trying to overcome these hesitancies that people have that it, there's nothing actually preventing them from doing it except for their own fears or, or beliefs or misconceptions or whatever? Right. I think that has to do a lot with your the uh, the trust and faith that you have in your practitioner. Yeah. If you have a good relationship with the practitioner, you won't feel those fears. But unfortunately, a lot a lot of us uh, don't have you know, we don't have that kind of uh, free flowing conversation back and forth. You know, the the doctor's sort of way up here on the, you know, high hill and and they're sort of talking down to me. And so I'm not sure if it if they're really getting through. So I think that, you know, it's finding that practitioner and. And really talking with that with your physician and trying to get them to understand that you know they're that you're looking at and you're very uh, interested in your own health and and prevention. 
But that all that leads back to the, the mistrust of the healthcare system, you know, because once you get in it, you know, there may be turns where you may have a good relationship with your primary care practitioner, but you may need to go see a specialist. And this specialist is uh, just treats you uh, with with no respect. And, and, and so, you know, you, it, it, you know, there's a lot of cultural competency that needs to be taught, you know, because obviously, you know, the, it, it's nice if you can have an African-American practitioner. But the reality is, is that we are a small number. Yeah. Uh, percentage wise in the healthcare system. So there's no way that we could take care of all of the African American people in the city. I mean, we could, we, we it, it's impossible for us to do numbers <laughs> wise. Yeah. So uh, we have to rely on our counterparts uh, to, uh, to help us. And that's what I want to dive in um, because when you talk about specialty, doctors who specialize in certain um, areas that are beyond the family medicine, uh, when you refer us out, and we have to advocate. For ourselves, because um, you've already referred us, because you know you you've identified that there's something else that um, your specialty is beyond your specialty. But for women, particularly, because Ohio has the highest rate of infant mortality rate for African American women, as well as African American women who die in childbirth. Why Ohio? And I'm, I was trying to figure this out, like why Ohio, which is in the center or part in the middle of middle midwest but middle america that black women are we're seeing this these huge numbers of women who are either may not be heard or their bodies something's happening with their bodies that um their children are dying in um and childbirth or women themselves are dying in childbirth is there an explanation we've heard or seen or are or, or or what is the you know, is there a culmination of things? Yeah, to tell you the truth, we don't have the answer to that. We're trying to figure that out ourselves. Wow. Um, wow. Because it's multifactorial. You know, we've looked at, I've seen maps where they go back to the 1940s and 1950s where they had redlining for uh, loans and, and housing and things like that. Right. And you look today, all in the red line areas are where you're finding the highest infant mortality and maternal mortality rates. But yet there are a slew of clinics and things for people to get care, but for some reason there is a disconnect. Uh, is it cultural competency of the people who are caring for them? Is it too disjointed care? Uh, what is it that's really fueling that, uh, you know, the, those rates, you know, and so there, there's a lot of effort being put into research out that, uh, why that exists and, you know, putting health coaches in the community, people from the community to, to help bring, uh, the, the ladies in and monitor them. And after they've had their, their children, uh, are the children being fed? Is the mother being fed? Are they getting the medications? Are they being seen? You know, I, I think personally, I think a lot of that has to do with the doctor-patient relationship. And when I say that, I say that from the standpoint that it's nice, you know, it's nice when you get on an airplane and you're going from Columbus to New York, you don't know who the pilot is, you don't know who the 
air attendants or anything. All you want to know is, can I get to New York? And you get there very safely. There's all kinds of safety checks and everything. You get there safely. Right. With healthcare, we they have tried to create that same type of system where there's a lot of safety involved, but the outcomes don't seem to be matching the safety. So I think it's that personalized touch. If you're seeing the same practitioner throughout your pregnancy, right, and that practitioner delivers your baby, you may have more success. I don't know. But when you see one doctor one time, the nurse practitioner, the next time the midwife, and then a stranger delivers your baby, even though you did all the prenatal care and everything that you had, you didn't have that continuity of one practitioner guiding you through that system. So if something goes wrong, they know you, they know how to pull you back and things like that. So I think that it, that some of it gets down to that. Mm. Yeah, anyway, that's, I love that um, analogy you gave around the plane um, and, 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 you know, making sure how we get there and navigating and, and having that same system in the, in the uh, medical field. Um, but I'm wondering, too, if like the social and environmental plays a huge part, like you said, you know, um, it's not just, um, you know, they get all the great treatment while they're in care. But post care is when, like I said, when you're out of the doctor's purview, you know, they don't know what's happening in the home, the environment, right. other stressors that can possibly be um, mitigating some of these other issues that are exacerbating. Um, and putting stress on women's bodies in ways, um, and also food access, like you said, you know, food disparities. Right. The, the, all those things, uh, I think, really factoring to it, you know, and 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 uh, you know, we, we have to do a lot in in those areas to to uh, prop them up. You know, I mean, they have the WIC program, women, infants, and children kind of thing, which supplies, you know, supplements and things, but it's more for the children than for the mothers, other than you know, maybe some some SNAP assistance with, with, you know, food stamp kind of situation. But then, you know, it gets politicized. If you can't buy the, you know, right kind of foods and, and you know, you go and I, I remember the experience uh, with a with a patient and I'm standing in the grocery line and they have a they have a snap card and they buy a pineapple. Well, they bought the pineapple already cut up in the crate. People say you can't have that. That's not covered by your snap card. You got to buy the whole pineapple and take it home and cut it up yourself. What? So, so wow. There there are things within these systems that <laughs> I mean I just saw that and I I I was sort of amazed at that myself when I saw it. And I'm like, well, that don't make any sense. But but so there, you know, there are guidelines in terms of what you can get and how you can get it and how much and those kind of things. So, you know, yeah. There's just there's just a lot of things that play into that. I get it. Cause, cause they would consider it the prepared food versus food that's not prepared, that you have to prepare it as you you know. Because I know some some of those SNAP programs that you can't buy cooked food already, you know. Um, right. Yeah, especially with the uh, wow, that's <laughs> you, the system already defeats itself. Um, so, so, so I want to know what is the healthcare system doing to help correct itself around like some of the things you're addressing and bringing up um, 
of addressing racial disparities and gender disparities, um, sexuality disparities for people who are coming into the doctor, like they, and they um, the first time, and you know, a doctor may misgender someone, or a doctor may misracialize someone, because you know, just because we are phenotypically black, someone can say, "Well, I'm not," you know, "I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm Kenyan or I'm Jamaican." What are some of the ways that the system itself, like, is, or is the system interested in doing that type of work to around these cultural competencies that you talked about to help eradicate these fears or these um, these other um, contributing things that prevent people of color from accessing the system? Yeah, there there are a lot of programs out there. You know, there, there's a lot going on. You know, diversity and inclusion. You know, that's the yeah. <laughs> Diversity, inclusion and equity. I forgot the D.I.E. That's what it's right. called now. <laughs> so so there is a lot of work being done with uh, teaching cultural competency uh, to the practitioners and things like that to tr to 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 try to mitigate some of these uh, disparities. You know, uh, unfortunately, uh it's not a mandated kind of thing. So people sort of do it voluntarily. I mean, you know, if you're interested in a course like that, you go and you take it. If you're not interested in it, you just don't participate. Wow. And, and you know, um, all of us have a lot of implicit unknown biases that we just have that are deeply rooted in our upbringing and things right. like that. And, and even we as physicians uh, still have our own biases. And so- right those training sessions help you to sort of overcome those uh, biases or at least make you aware that you're biased so that when you see somebody of different gender or something like that, that you don't just assume that, that you sort of tread lightly in those areas, you know? Uh, so those are some of the things that are, that are being done to try to, to, to uh, you know, mitigate some of that, you know, that's, that's sort of, uh, how how we're sort of uh, attacking it. And, you know, there's diversity and inclusion, equity officers within all the big corporations now to <laughs> try to do that and, and hire different people of different backgrounds and, and things. But, you know, there's a lot of conservative pushback against yeah. affirmative action and all these kinds of things, singling out groups and stuff, you know, so it's it's a struggle. So do you think with like the 616 bill that's like that Ohio State is presenting, you know, the don't say gay and you know talk about race and diversity, equity and inclusion now in most corporations like they did in Florida, they passed that law. Um, Ohio has the bill up for debate now that it will prevent um, health practitioners, like you said, corporations who may work for like a, a bigger, you know, health um, corporation versus an independent doctor who's a private practitioner from being able to be a part of that conversation. Do you think, do you foresee that being part of that? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, if they, if they pass a law that says you can't do those kinds of things, you know, the big corporations are, are, are not going to do it just for fear of, you know, lawsuits and backlash and all that kind of stuff. You know, if they go out and start talking about it and somebody brings it to somebody's attention, all of a sudden you've got the government coming in you know, uh, civil rights and all kinds of stuff. You know, they want to avoid all that, 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 all that uh, 
type of talk. So, uh, of course, you know, the big corporations will, um, you know, they'll follow, they'll, they'll probably follow the law, you know, if, it's, if it's something like that gets passed until, of course, you know, it weaves its way through the courts and they find it maybe unconstitutional or whatever, you know. Right. However they, you know, however that goes. Yep. Wow. Well, I, we're going to wrap this up, but I want to thank you again. But I, I want to get it, and, you know, this final conversation, which is I've seen this happening when I was in Tennessee, um, telecare um, in, 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 in Nashville. But in the state of Tennessee, they're pushing um, and this is part of Meharry Medical College, which, uh, you know, historically black medical uh -huh. school. Um, and they're attached to a hospital, um, but they were pushing more of their patients to participate in telecare, meaning that you no longer go to the hospital for ailments or treatment. You call in or you do a video with your doctor, so it becomes more of a tele or internet interface if it's nothing serious. They're trying to cut down and prevent so many people flooding um, hospitals and waiting rooms and that nature. So they move toward this telecare where you can talk to your doctor via, you know, internet or and all these other things. Do you foresee that as the new wave of how we our healthcare system will move, and how that will impact people of color, particularly uh, the elderly and those who may not, you know, the poor, disenfranchised? Um, how that telecare may continue to disenfranchise those? Who currently are not even seeing a doctor, but further exacerbate that issue. Right. I think I think uh, that uh, telehealth is is it's it's going to be a wave of the future, you know. And 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 to be able to log in and talk to your doctor and and take care of minor problems, or even you know if you're monitoring your blood pressure at home, and I you know I will call you one day and say how your blood pressure doing, and you show me your readings. You know, I may only see you once a year or twice a year uh, for that. And in between, we'll have telehealth. I think that uh, it's it's a good technology. But at the same token, we have a digital divide amongst African-Americans, elderly and the poor. You know, right now, the Internet is is privatized. You know, I mean, you got cable TV, but it's run by cable companies or telephone companies. You know, it's not. It's not free flowing. So, exactly. so you got to have a device. You got to have a device to get onto uh, the internet. Right. You know, right there, there's a, a digital divide because everybody doesn't have a, a device. Right. You have a device, it may not be compatible. But, but if I could just, just to play devil's advocate here with you too, what about the people who don't have transportation? to get to the doctor's office. So I understand what you got, what you all are saying in terms of if you don't have the internet connection, then yes, then that's a barrier for you. However, for some people, such as the elderly, people who are, you know, shut in, can't get out, don't have transportation, uh, telemedicine could also provide a, an opportunity for those, those patients who might not have the ability to physically get into the office. Go ahead, doctor. I just wanted to throw that in there. Oh, yeah. No, that's good. I mean, uh, you're right. And that's what we we do a lot. I do a lot of telehealth right now. And uh, my experience has been my elderly patients refuse to do it. They want to come to the office. So they get, somebody, <laughs> they get on the bus. They're not, 
they they don't want a uh on the camera visit. They want an in-person touch me, feel me kind of visit. Right. And and I think for for us as a population, we've never been touched and felt in the healthcare system uh as a as a whole. You know, we use the emergency room and urgent cares as our primary care. When we get sick, <laughs> we run to one of those spots to get well. But in between time, we don't we don't touch the system at all. So it'd be good, at least if you had telehealth, you could touch it a little bit and then you could come on in. But I think that uh it's gonna be good and you know if everyone can be able to access it, you know, but that's gonna that's gonna be one of the, the things and and you know, we don't get the cutting edge of everything when it comes along in our society. You know, we we sort of get it secondhand after everybody else gets it. So, you know, we get the bootleg version. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get it, but it'll be different. Right. Right. Wow. This is an important conversation. I really appreciate you taking your time to talk with us to, you know, to help cut through some of this, um, the weeds and, you know, what our healthcare system needs to do, how it can, you know, hopefully fix itself if it wants to fix itself. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I hope that, um, and I, and this, I guess, this is my final question: Do you think medical schools should start offering if, if, um, if we don't want to leave it up to the medical system itself? Do you think medical schools, it would behoove them to incorporate cultural competency courses? Um, they can teach courses on, you know, black culture, you know, um, Asian culture, like all these various different types of um, disparities in groups that may be differently diverse than what they, the typical patient that they may come across. Right. And, and I think that's going to be uh, key to importance in the future. I think that uh, those type of courses, I, I know that the OSU College of Medicine does have some cultural competency teaching incorporated into the medical education of their students. That's great. Uh, and I think that's going to be very important uh, for the future, you know, and I think that the whole, uh, the whole scene should really be that healthcare should not be a privilege, but healthcare should be a right. Mm. And I think that goes all the way up to the Constitution of the United States. You know, you got freedom of speech. You can carry a gun. You got you got uh, education is a right. We have to provide public education and right. and all these kind of things. And I think that healthcare is right in there somewhere uh, along those lines. And I think as we move the needle in that direction, you know, it'll it'll be better for all of us in the in in the United States as Americans. It'll be you know, we'll all get good health care. Thank you, Dr. Brunner. You're absolutely Thank right. You, Dr. Okay. Now, how can people find you? So those who may have a, a, health, um, a health practitioner um, or family doctor, um, are you taking new clients? <laughs> and if you were, nope. how, <laughs> how can they find you? <laughs> uh, well, I, I know I'm on the Ohio Health uh, uh website under the practitioners, you know, to go to, you go to Ohio Health, uh, the practitioners group, you know, we're on that uh, website. Uh, we're accepting new patients in our, in our office down on uh, Main Street, 500 East Main, Suite 100. 
I myself are not taking any new patients just because I've got so many patients now that <laughs> I'm at capacity. So uh, you can't get one more in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I get them. I get them in um, periodically. You know, friends and families of existing patients. I see. Right. You know, and and uh, you know, we get them in. But if you just call up on the phone and say I want to see Dr. Barnett, they're going to say he's not accepting any new patients. So, uh, but our office is, and we have nurse practitioner, other physicians there. We're trying to build them up and 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 keep them going. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, thank you, Doctor Barnett. It was thank you, Doctor Barnett. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks thank a lot. Glad, good to be glad to be here. For everybody else out there, uh, you can find this episode on Dispatch.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like journalism like this, please consider becoming a subscriber and check back regularly for the next installment of the In Black and White podcast series. Thanks. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.